political leaders. And that's what we, uh, in Sacramento we see it, and in San Francisco we see it. City Hall and the state capitol that are pretty much dominated by uh, by big real estate money. Um, it's not that they can't solve the problem, it's that they have no incentive to do it. And what we've been doing, and I've been doing for the last uh, 16 years in San Francisco, is organizing folks and using every tool we've got. Women of the world, take over, because if you don't, the world will come to an end, and we haven't got long. Women of the world, take over, because if you don't, the world will come to an end. God long. Men have had their shot, and look at where we've got. Women of the world, take over, because if you don't, the world will come to an end, and we haven't got long.
Hello, and welcome to the Weekly Review with Roman. I'm Roman. Today, it is Friday. We're in October. And trigger warning, uh, this is a news program, so I'll be going over a little bit of current events. And I'll be playing a bit of another podcast that I heard recently that I thought was really... Uh, beneficial to hear so a good chunk of today's podcast will be playing another podcast and just sharing other information other conversations that i feel are really beneficial for folks to hear i didn't get coffee this morning it wasn't anything i had planned to not do and then before i knew it it was 11:50. as in the station I was like wait a second what's missing today so probably be a little bit low energy in that regard there's a lot happening i'm personally feeling Ugh, that's what I'm feeling. Um, there's been a whole... We didn't quite get to it last week. There was the, the Harvey Weinstein sex scandal, which a lot of folks had known about for a very long time, and then folks were calling him out, and now he's being held accountable uh, after decades of abuse. And folks online were... I was away this weekend, and I came back, and there were um, folks online were talking about their own experiences, and that's a lot so wanting to just allow the space for that and to tell folks i believe you and then also recognizing that there's the the two sides to it or the two sides in that there's the folks who cause the abuse and then the folks who (sighs) suffer and i want to be very careful with the language and also recognize that there are many people who have been on both sides of that and wondering how to to talk about that as well so, ugh, I've been wanting to write about it and then also having difficulty finding the language for it and then also not necessarily being in the correct space to want to delve into experiences that I've been in that were traumatic. And it's a way of, in some ways, it's there's a meme going around where it's like, just because you don't talk about it, experiencing this trauma doesn't mean it didn't happen and it also doesn't mean that... Um, it didn't count. So I think there's a, there's some folks where it just feels like a lot where you, you go online and most of online, I think for some of us is that just the kind of pointing out and the talking about what's happening. That's problematic. And, you know, looking at really the, the state structure and the systemic structure, because it's all connected. Of course, if we live under a misogynist, patriarchal, violent state, then of course uh, the behaviors are going to mimic that and not be held accountable when you have, and not to take away from the personal responsibility, because that is definitely crucial. I think it's also really important that we look at the the state structure, we look at the military, we look at the police, we look at who's in positions of power and who's denying health care, because that too is violent. Who's denying housing, that's violent. And I think too, it's one thing to be held accountable for personal actions and to take responsibility for that and to make the changes necessary so it doesn't happen again. And it's also important to to call out the the more broad structure that we're living under. And there, I mean, the person with probably the most power, I mean, power can be used in an interesting way, but when we look at 45, they're someone who has gotten away with years and years of abuse and has never been held accountable for anything. So when is he going to be taken down? When is Mike Pence going to be taken down? When are these folks who are literally trying to kill us going to be going to be stripped of their power? When are they going to be held accountable? 
<sighs> started off the show with some really great songs and a big thank you to Dana for uh, introducing me to to these. Um, the first one was by Ivor Cutler and that came out in 83. And then the following is a cover by uh, Jim O'Rourke who was in Sonic Youth. And I hadn't, or maybe I'd heard them, but I didn't quite really listen. And so I think it's a really good plan for women of the world taking over, and that would solve a lot of problems. I'd also like to make a note, because I can, and I guess there's two hours for me to talk, although I won't be doing too much more talking. I thought I wasn't going to be talking much, but now I feel a bit more warmed up. Um, It's not all, I mean, it's not all women. There was a meme I saw recently. They sometimes seem just to get that point across, and how Republicans want 18... 18 people to control all the wealth in the country and Democrats are like, okay, but make sure that nine of them are women. (laughs) So when we talk about women taking control, I think we mean all women. We mean like, or we mean that it's equally distributed by women, which will bring me into the next segment I'll be playing, which is part of a podcast. And the topic is women and white supremacy and how a lot of women, white women have been complicit in white supremacy and even been instrumental in having it continue on and i think that's a, a discussion that needs to happen and folks need to talk about it or listen just listen maybe we need more listening and less talking sometimes that could be i think just as important so i won't be doing as much talking once i start playing this and this is from the the podcast stuff mom never told you and the subject is women and white supremacy it came out in september i think september 13th it came out and they speak the hosts speak with an entrepreneur and activist named um, Marissa Janae Johnson. And there's also, I'm going to play about 40 minutes of it, and I might take a little break in between, play some music, and then go back to it. There's also news stories that we'll get to. Richard Spencer, for some reason, is still alive. We don't know why. And he was speaking in Gainesville. Thankfully, a lot of people protested. Thousands of people protested. Another Nazi got punched. Then there's also reports of a Nazi getting hugged. And, you know, I can't I can't, I get it that I, I just have trouble. I, I don't think it should be up to the marginalized folks who are being targeted by these people to have to be the ones to like change their mind or to make ourselves vulnerable to them personally. I don't think it's up to, up to us to do that. However, if that's what you think you can do, go, go for it. Just don't ask me to do that. Okay. So that we'll maybe be talking about a little bit. So people were protesting three men, three white men were arrested because they shot at some people. So for all the folks saying, oh, you know, just here, you know, it's just free speech. They can say whatever they want. Yeah. And then they come in and they start shooting people. And there also was, they were saying that since they were not allowed to do as much as they wanted to do, they were talking about targeting, they're talking about targeting Chabad and like different organizations at University of Florida. So these folks are out there. They want a fucking white ethno state. I don't understand why some folks are still on the fence about whether or not we should oppose these people. Why are you still defending them? And it's and the fact that it's still here in this country and has been for a while, that it was it's this country that, as far as we are told, that this country is it's that's what it was kind of founded on. The idea we need everything we can do to stop these people, everything. So I'm still arguing with people. I'm maybe just bowing out of some conversations because it's making me mad that some folks think that. At times, violence is not necessarily okay. But if you need to defend yourself, what else can you do? It's I think folks are making excuses for these people, or, and or they've never been attacked, and or their families have never been attacked, so they don't know. They 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 don't see 
what it's like to constantly be under threat. Okay. Which brings me to Cleveland State. So there are some flyers. That was a text message. Sharing with the listeners. There um, there was a... So flyers I've seen around before that some folks, I guess, were just copying and pasting around. And another one, and it's super homophobic and transphobic. And it's pretty much calling on all LGBTQ folks to commit suicide. And these are found at Cleveland State. This was within the last week. The president of Cleveland State said, oh, but these these flyers are about free speech. That's what the president of a fucking university said. People were, of course, then being like, fuck you, no, this is not okay. And eventually he, I think, somewhat apologized, but still not okay. And also the group that put it up was also, in addition to being homophobic and transphobic, which should be enough, they were also... They also were linked to like white supremacist groups as well. So these are folks who really don't want anyone to be alive but them. And that part was like left out of some of the news stories. And again, we have to be really careful with where we hear our news from and what's what's accurate, what's not, what are the for the journalists trying journal if they are, you know, what stories are we hearing and we have to be really critical of the how things are worded and their bias. Okay. So you got flyers up at school telling a marginalized group that's already like the, the suicidality rates of queer folks is already pretty high, right? You're telling these folks who are already marginalized, already have a difficult time in life. You're encouraging them to kill, kill themselves. And a president of a fucking school says, Oh, this is free speech. This is protected free speech. What side is he on? I wonder. He should not be the president of that school anymore. In St. Louis, uh, protests have continued on. The people have been protesting there for, now it's been like a month. I mean, p- protests have been going on for a long time. And in particular, after the police murder. And recently, I th- this morning, saw a video of, or some footage of a college professor, someone associated with the college who was saying that students have the right to protest and then security didn't like that, so this person was tackled because they were trying to stand up for the students. So we're really seeing the police state kind of just infiltrating everywhere and not allowing people to speak, and that's quite frightening. So and this is, of course, after the murder of Anthony Lamar Smith, so wanting to name him as well. Um, ah, There are fires up in Santa Rosa and other, other places as well. Um, thankfully, we had some rain this last... Yesterday, it started raining a little bit. It would have been nice if the rain had come in two weeks earlier. So many people, many, many, many people lost their homes. Over 30 people died. Uh, a lot of rebuilding has to happen and also it's it's times like these that you know folks think about mutual aid and why we can't have this all the time and it's interesting how just in times of emergencies that's when people seem to be more generous and if we could do that all the time even when there's not emergencies but i guess it is an emergency because just because it's not affecting a lot of people doesn't mean it's still not an emergency so there are people 
right now without housing, without getting their basic needs met, people who don't have food, who don't have health care. That's an emergency, too. And I don't want to downplay what the, the fires at all. It seems like there's one thing after the other, and there's a constant state of emergency for a lot of people in this country and around the world. And the people in positions of power don't seem to want to help because there's nothing in it for them to do that. Okay. So how about a really uncomfortable podcast now? Maybe we should do a music break before then? Um, yeah. Let's let's do a music break before we, we put on the next podcast. And thank you to Anna because a friend of mine um, was giving away some old CDs. I shouldn't say old CDs, but they're CDs. Anyway, and Frank, who's a singer who I hadn't heard from for a long time, I was like, oh, yeah, great. So it's always good to be to hear music that we haven't heard from for a while. So I'm going to play a song or two um, from Frank, and then we'll get into this next podcast, and then we'll be back. So this is a song called Amazons, and it's a, ooh, it's a, <laughs> it's a live recording of that. And yeah, then we'll be back and I'll, maybe I'll introduce the, the podcast before we start it. I'll be as professional as I can be with that. Like Diane and I I want to swim 89 miles Give me a set of deltoids Like Tracy Coffin I want to be strong Like those Amazons Like Nancy Lieberman, strong, 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 like an Amazon. I want to play badminton like a Tammy Kennard. I want to smash that birdie like Christy Cook. I want to acquire the perfect drop shot, have total control over that. Shuttlecock, strong, 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 like an Amazon. I wanna run in the Boston Marathon. I wanna go, 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 like Allison Rowe. I wanna play tennis like Billie Jean King. I wanna serve in volley like Martina King. I want to be strong, like an Amazon. I want to smack the ball like Yvonne Apulagon. Strong, strong. Strong, strong, like an Amazon. And I want to learn to drive like Janet Guthrie. I want to zoom, zoom like Chachamel Downey. I want to be strong, like an Amazon. Eind vanlijk dacht ik dat het verschijnsel Punk alweer bijna uitgestorven was, tot ik in de zomer van 1981 in Los Angeles was en daar overal Punks tegenkwam, alsof hier sprake was van een massale jeugdbeweging. 
En omdat zoveel verschijnselen zich vanuit Los Angeles over de hele wereld verspreiden, was ik er als een kippen bij om u te berichten over wat ook u, ouders in Nederland, wat dit betreft nog te wachten zou kunnen staan. Take off your swastika. It's making me angry. Take off your swastika. It really nauseates me. You say, Frank, it's just a symbol. It's just an emblem. Come on, don't get so upset. It's just a righteous decoration. Well, it means a little more to me. Cause I'm a Jewish lesbian, you see, and fascism isn't anarchy. Fascism isn't anarchy. Fascism is not anarchy. If it was you in those ovens, you wouldn't think it was so cool. If it was you in those ovens, you wouldn't think it was so cool. If it was you in those ovens, you wouldn't think it was so god damn cool. Any excuse that anyone gives you for wearing them, that it looks great, that it, that it just looks nice and all that, that's a pile of crap to me. I yeah. mean, there's symbols and it, young people today have a lot of energy and they've got brains too. And uh, they should look at symbols before they attach them to their bodies. And uh, I don't buy any of the crap about swastikas being shock value. Mm -hmm. um, if they're wearing them just to make people mad, that's stupid. Half the people that are wearing them that I've talked to don't even know what fascism is. Um, they just wear it because they look cool. I do that song, Take Off Your Swastikas, and there'll be like, sometimes there's like 10 young people in the front with swastikas on giving me the Sieg Heil. Um, and then they all sneak up backstage when their friends aren't looking and say, I really like that song, but don't tell my friend. So that was uh, Frank with Take Off Your Swastikas from 1981, that song was from. Maybe we're like living in a timeless era. Maybe time doesn't exist where people are just terrible all the time. And everyone's calling them out, saying, hey, stop being a fucking fascist, and people don't listen, and liberals make excuses. And I'm going to get to uh, another story. There is, so there's this Nazi rally in Madison Square Garden <sighs> back in the... Oh, I need to look at the exact, exact year, but folks were like, no, this can't happen, and people you know, rushed the stage. Where did I read that? And let me pull that up so I can have the exact information about it. And apparently there are folks who are arguing on behalf of free speech. <laughs> that was the thing. Folks were arguing on behalf of free speech and it was up to the people to, you know, to call it out and say this isn't okay, this is not appropriate. So what we're seeing has been <laughs> it's like we're it's like they're coming it's the same thing. The people who are defending fascists. And if people stop defending fascists, we could probably just do away with them altogether. I think. And if people were not acting as their bodyguards, that would be quite appropriate. So here's, okay, newly released footage shows 20,000 American Nazis rallying at Mount Madison Square Garden. And this, um, so there's an article on Gothamist, and they spoke with a historian and author named Arnie Bernstein about, so this wasn't, uh, there was like a quote-unquote a pro-American rally, yet they were doing the not 
these are these are Nazis supporting Americans had a pro-American rally. Okay, that's their idea of it. And this is in 1939. And let's see. Oh, I'll read this. Why not? I wasn't planning on it, but I'll read this. Now, back in August, following the deadly violence carried out by white supremacists in Charlottesville, we spoke with historian and author Arnie Bernstein about the time that 20,000 Nazi-supporting Americans staged a pro-American rally at one of the old Madison Square Garden locations at 8th Avenue and West 50th Street. Organized by Fritz Kuhn, uh, leader of the influential German-American Nazi group known as the Bund, the 1939 gathering also prompted some 100,000 angry New Yorkers to take to the streets where they were met by the largest police presence in the city's history. Why would the police defend the Nazis? I don't get it. That was very trying to be as sarcastic as possible. According to Bernstein, the event was a defining moment for the emerging fascist and anti-fascist movements in the United States. Now, for the first time, footage from that historic evening has been collected in one place and made available to the public, courtesy of filmmaker Marshall Curry and the documentary project Field of Vision. In the above short film, Kuhn can be heard speaking of a white, Gentile-ruled United States free from Jewish Moscow-directed domination. At one point, thousands of well-dressed Americans give the Nazi salute to the, Ameri- to the to an American flag, a portrait of George Washington and a swastika. Oh my gosh. Soon after, a Jewish man charges the podium and is swiftly dragged away by uniformed boon men to the crowd's great amusement. Over email, we talked with Curry about how he stumbled across this disturbing footage and identity of the brave dis- disruptor and the history that we'd prefer to forget. And I'm going to share this right now just because I feel like this is super important. So, boom. All right. It's out in the universe more. Okay. So the the author says, a friend told me about it last year, and I couldn't believe that I'd never heard of it. When I found out that it'd been filmed, I asked an archival researcher, Rich, Rich Rensberg, to see what he could find. It turned out that the short clips had been used in his history documentaries before, but no one seemed to have collected together all the, all the scraps of footage. There was one of the National Archives, some of the UCLA's archive, excuse me, some out of their places. So he gathered it, and I edited it together into a short narrative. When Charlottesville happened, it began to feel urgent, so I sent it over to Laura Poitras and Charlotte Cook at Field Division and said, have you ever heard of this event? Would you be interested in supporting the film? And they jumped on board. The first thing that struck me was that an event like this could happen in the heart of New York City, a city that was diverse, modern, and progressive, even in 1939. The second that struck me was the way these American Nazis used the symbols of America to sell an ideology that a few years later, hundreds of thousands of Americans would die fighting against. It really illustrated that the tactics of demagogues have been the same throughout the ages. They attack the press using sarcasm and humor. They tell their followers that they are the true Americans, or Germans, or Spartans, or, and they encourage their followers to, quote-unquote, take their country back from whatever minority group has ruined it. Next question. What do we know about the man who charged the podium? He was a 26-year-old plumber's helper from Brooklyn named Isidore Greenbaum. When he ran on stage to protest, he was beaten up and had his pants ripped off as he was thrown from the stage. He was also arrested for disorderly conduct and fined $25. 
There was a debate at the time over whether the Bund should be allowed to have a rally, which, like so many things about the event, seems eerily contemporary. Greenbaum explained to the judge the day after the rally, I went down to the garden without any intention of interrupting. But being that they talked so much against my religion, and there was so much persecution, I lost my head, and I felt it was my duty to talk. The magistrate asked him, Don't you realize that innocent people might have been killed? And Greenbaum replied, Do you realize that plenty of Jewish people might be killed with their persecution up there? But in the New York Times, the American Jewish Committee argued that although the Bund was completely anti-American and anti-democratic, because we believe that the basic rights of free speech and free assembly must never be tampered with in the United States, we are opposed to any action to prevent the Bund from airing its views. Mayor LaGuardia, for his part, ridiculed the event as an exhibition of international cooties. Yes, I did read that correctly. The person, the mayor, the one-time mayor, the person that there's an airport named after, used the word cooties. Okay. International cooties. uh, Exhibition of international cooties. And said he believed in exposing cooties to the sunlight. Okay. Uh, next question. Are you, are you surprised more people aren't familiar with this rally? The footage is so powerful. It seems amazing that it isn't stock part of every high school history class, but I think that the rally has slipped out of our collective memory in part because it's scary and embarrassing. It tells a story about our country that we'd prefer to forget. We'd like to think that not that when Nazism rose up, all Americans were instantly appalled. But while the vast majority of Americans were appalled by the Nazis, there were also a significant group of Americans who were sympathetic to their white supremacist anti-Semitic message. When you see 20,000 Americans gathering in Madison Square Garden, you can be sure that many times that were many that many times that were passively supportive. In a part of Fritz Kuhn's speech, it isn't in the film. He applauds Father Coughlin, whose radio shows praising Hitler and Mussolini reached audiences of over 30 million. Henry Ford and Charles Lindbergh expressed anti-Semitic beliefs, and press magnet William Randolph Hearst declared, wherever you hear a prominent American called a fascist, you can usually make up your mind that the man is simply a loyal citizen who stands for Americanism. In a small ironic twist, we licensed some of the Bund footage from the Hearst collection at UCLA. These were ideas that, if not universally accepted, were at least considered legitimate points of view. But two years after this rally, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor and Germany declared war on the U.S. And at that point, this sort of philosophy became unacceptable. When the Nazis began killing American soldiers, we started erasing the fact that any Americans had ever shared their, their philosophy. In the end, America pulled away from the cliff, but this rally is a reminder that things don't have to work out that way. If Roosevelt weren't president, if, J- if Japan hadn't attacked, is it possible we would have skated through without joining the war? And if Nazis hadn't killed American soldiers, is it possible that their philosophy wouldn't be- have become so taboo here? Next, can you talk a bit about your stylistic choices? What was the thinking behind presenting the footage this way, and what do you hope audiences take away from it? The film doesn't have narration or interviews to clearly 
underline the takeaways, but I think most audiences will find lots to chew on. To me, the most striking and upsetting part of the film is not the anti-Semitism of the main speaker or even the violence of his stormtroopers. What bothers me more is the reaction of the crowd. 20,000 New Yorkers who loved their kids and were probably nice to their neighbors came home from work that day, dressed up in suits and skirts, and went out to cheer and laugh and sing as a speaker dehumanized people who would be murdered by the millions in the next few years. The point is less an indictment of bad things that Americans have done in the past than it is a cautionary tale about the bad things that we might do in the future. When the protester is being beaten up, there's a little boy in the crowd who I zoomed on in the edit. You can see him rub his hands together, doing an excited little dance, unable to contain the giddy excitement that comes from being part of a mob. When the protester is finally thrown off stage, there's a long, slow pan across the crowd that is laughing, clapping, cheering, like they're at a World Wrestling Federation match. We like to believe that there are sharp lines between good people and bad people, but I think most humans have dark passions inside us, waiting to be stirred up by a demagogue who is funny and mean, who can convince us that decency is for the weak, that democracy is naive, and that kindness and respect for others are just ridiculous political correctness. Events like this should remind us not to be complacent, that the things we care about have to be nurtured and defended regularly because even seemingly good people have the potential to do hideous things. At first, I thought I'd make a traditional documentary with a historian explaining the background of the group. But when I started cutting the footage together, I realized there was a real power in just watching it unfold without explanation when most people watch it. At first, they're puzzled. What is this? They see George Washington and American flags and hear the Pledge of Allegiance. Notably, the phrase under God was added in 1954. But then they see the swastikas and people giving the, uh, the Nazi salute, and it's really unsettling. So I decided to keep it pure and cinematic and unmeditated unmeditated, unmediated, as if you are there watching and wrestling with it, what you are seeing, and I wanted to do to be more provocative than didactic, a cold splash of history tossed into the discussion we are having about white supremacy right now. So this is posted on our weekly review page. We go to facebook.com slash weekly rev, and it's also um, on Gothamist, so you can check out the footage there as well as read the article, which I just read aloud. I don't have it in me right now to play this. I'm going to check myself at this moment and not expose myself to more things that are going to make me angry and upset. So there we go. Next up, I will do an introduction. This is another podcast that I heard recently from it's called the podcast is called stuff mom never told you and this was came out on September 13th 2017 and I'm fast forwarding to do like the last maybe uh, maybe 45 minutes or so of this podcast and it's about women and white supremacy so uh, you can find it if you go to stuff mom never told you dot com you can find the podcast in full there and I'll be back after this <laughs> And we are back. And buckle up, white folks, especially, because it's about to get even more uncomfortable. I know that this can be a really tough topic to get a little self-critical around racism in America and white supremacy and the institutions and sort of lattice work of white supremacy that persists in our country. But this is not something that is relegated to hood-wearing, cross-burning, tiki-torch-wielding people marching through the streets. It's just not always that overt. 
it's not always that overt. And if there was one thing I would want to impart on people about racism is you don't need to be burning a cross on someone's lawn or wearing a swastika shaved into your head to perpetuate some really toxic stuff on race. Racism is a system. We all have you know, a role to play in these systems that kind of control our lives and that our country was founded on. And even if you're someone who says, oh, well, I don't have a problem with Black people or I don't have a problem with immigrants or you think of yourself as someone who's good or someone who, quote, doesn't see race, we all have, which, which is not helpful. <laughs> unhelpful thing. <laughs> it's not a thing. But yeah. we all have a role in this because we all live in society. Exactly. And you know what? One of the best resources I found on this is actually called the Racism Scale, which was put out for free along with some a bunch of educational resources that you can find at racismscale.weebly, that's W-E-E-B-L-Y, dot com, which is really a labor of love by a few groups formed around social justice and some activists who put together this scale that they never intended to go viral, but has in fact gone viral since Charlottesville because it really beautifully and visually describes the sort of sliding scale of racist beliefs that you might catch yourself experiencing on occasion. Now, this is us calling you in, as we've discussed in a recent episode, not calling you out, but calling you in, and especially uh, as someone who presents white, calling in my white fellow women and men to think critically before we jump to action to help other people, to help folks of color. Let's begin by doing the really hard work of self-analysis and self-critique by looking at this sliding scale and thinking about where you might lie. Yeah, I think this scale is a really useful tool. Um, one of the things I really like about it is that it lays out what you might think of as of course, that's really racist and messed up. Like, I would kill a person because they were Black or whites are the superior race. But it also goes to a spectrum where it's these smaller, more subtle forms of racism and things that you might even catch yourself saying from time to time. Things like, how am I privileged if I was born poor? Or I just don't like the ghetto. Or it was just a joke. Or uh, what about reverse racism? If you find yourself thinking these things, these are actually not the most productive and useful thoughts when you're thinking about um, institutions like white supremacy. Yeah, the thing I love about this is that you don't have to be a terrorist or an overt racist to fall on this scale. There really is a huge extent to the scale that was around denial. Things like, well, racism is no longer a thing, all the way to feeling like a white savior who has to come in and save the day or this justification of being woke uh, this idea that there's, you know, that love conquers all this, like, can't we all just get along kumbaya post-racial society stuff? And something that I think is really, really important that we dive deeper into, which is known as the performative ally. Now, once you get beyond the performative ally, the person who might, I don't know, wear a safety pin just to show everybody that they're not a racist in the era of Donald Trump in the White House... Once you get beyond that sort of performative uh, allyship, which is really all about you, the ally, making sure everyone knows that you're a good person, that's where we can get to true awareness around privilege and its continuous impact in society and real lasting allyship. 
and to talk more about allyship and what that looks like when it's being done in a thoughtful way versus a not-so-thoughtful way, we're really pleased to be joined by Marissa Janae Johnson. She's a co-creator of The Safety Pin Box, along with Leslie Mack, and they're amazing digital activists and really rad Black women that you should definitely be following on Twitter and listening to. Marissa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So Marissa, first of all, tell me about Safety Pin Box and why you and Leslie created it. Yeah, so, you know, we're three years into this Black Lives Matter movement, and I feel like, in general, we're in, like, a soul-searching period where people are really looking for direction in the movement. And one of the major problems that hasn't been solved in the movement is we, most of the um, people in the movement, primarily black women, black queer folks, um are really struggling to figure out the sustainability piece of this movement because when everything, you know, sort of popped off with the Ferguson uprising and with the, with the murder of Mike Brown, everybody was running sort of off of pure emotion and adrenaline. Um, but here we are three years later, Donald Trump is um, president, and people are needing to find out more sustainable avenues for doing this work. So that's the context that me and my co-founder Leslie come out of this being you know, activists around us who will be on MSNBC one day and who we know um, can't afford to buy groceries that week. And there seemed to be no solution. And so that's the context that we came out of. And then the election of Donald Trump happened and we saw this overwhelming sort of, like, emotion and, like, fake or maybe not fake uh, shock from, quote-unquote, liberals or well-to-do white people. Like, how does this happen? And, and there was a lot of, like... Um, and I think still is a lot of uh, people emoting all over the place of like, oh, no, we have to stop this. And what me and Leslie saw uh, right off the bat was that uh, people didn't know what to do or how to actually respond. And one of the one of the ways that we knew that one of the greatest symbols that we saw of this um, following the election of Donald Trump was the safety pin fad, which was basically uh, imported from the U.K., which is basically this idea, this idea that, you know, white liberals or good-meaning white people would wear a safety pin on their, like, lapel or their shirt or whatever. And that, that would signal to everyone else who was around, including, like, uh, a Muslim woman, you know, who was being a victim of a hate crime or a gay person or a black person or who was in danger or whatever, that, um, that they were a safe white person and that they would intervene. And this, this fad was pretty laughable to... <laughs> Uh, to a lot of uh, people of marginalized identities, and particularly black women, because it felt very performative. And, and, and a lot of people, when you talk to them who were uh, pro-safety pin, you'd be like, cool, what's your safety plan for when someone attacks someone in front of you? And they didn't have a plan. Yeah. So it was basically just virtue signaling the other white people. Yeah. So, Marissa, I have to say, I took a little flack on this very show for being skeptical of safety pins. Well, we've laughed about them here. People, yeah, we've we've laughed about them, and people don't like that. People got very people get defensive when you call out their. I mean, I hate to say it, their shallow, empty attempt at signaling virtue. Well, the other piece about this. I mean, that was the first piece that happened. Leslie and I were in Jamaica while this was going down. The second piece was then we saw white people commodifying the safety pin and selling $300 safety pin necklaces right, <laughs> on Etsy. Right, yes, right? yeah. And, and even now, you know, we saw Pantsuit Nation with, like, $70 branded Pantsuit Nation leggings. <laughs> and we're like, okay, 
where is all this money going to? Is this money going to those who are directly affected? And so basically white people, as white people do, we're making money off of the emotional response to it. And like n- very little, pro- and more likely than not, none of that money was right. going back directly to who's most affected. So that's kind of how we came up with the idea to kill two birds with one stone. Why don't we um, create a product to educate white people on what kind of tangible actions they can take and let's use a considerable amount of that money to directly financially support activists on the ground. Yeah, so I love that so much. Um, I just wanted to lift up something that you said in that. It's this idea that after Trump got elected, it was sort of a spectrum of kind of fake shock by maybe well-meaning whites who were like, how could this happen? And then sort of this sort of performative safety pin thing. And then this last kind of gross thing of commodifying that 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 ally performance. Um, and so I'm curious, what does it look like to be a good ally. If you're a white person who is well-meaning and, you know, disgusted by racism and blah, 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 what do you, how do you avoid falling into this trap of having it be either A, very performative without actually having a, a tangible, you know, metric for what it looks like when you actually do something helpful or without having it be like this emotional thing that's all about you and how sad you are? Right, right. Well, one of the things I like to say is there are no good white people. Um, and I mean that very specifically. And that one of the things yeah. That wait, can you explain doing, that? Um, can you explain that a little bit further? Yeah, so as a as a yeah, no, I'm Im- immediately feeling defensive white person <laughs> on behalf of all the defensive white listeners that we have. Yeah, don't just it's fine, defensive white person. Just let me finish. I'm explaining it right now. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll stop. Uh, but I'll be very clear. There, there are no good white people. Um, and one of the things that I encourage uh, white folks who, who want to be useful in the fight for black liberation is to work through that notion that there are no good white people. Um, and, and why that's important is the first piece is that um, one of the issues that we see is that a lot of white people think they're already good or good enough, right? So they don't do any introspection. They aren't able to actively engage critique, right? Because I'm one of the good ones. Right. Right. And so and a lot of the actions that we see people doing are preoccupied with looking like a good person or not looking bad. And so we put folks in a position where they they care more about looking good. So if you're able to let go of this notion that you are a good white person or always wanting to seem like you look like a good white person, then ideally you can step beyond that to really be self-critical and to be able to um actually receive uh, actually receive criticism, right? Actually be held accountable for your actions because a lot of times when we're talking about racism, you talk to a white person, you can be very direct and say, you harmed me in X way. Right. And they'll say, but I'm a good, right? There's, it's instantaneously back, I'm a good white person. So if you, if you let go of that myth altogether, we believe that's where you can start doing the work. Now, the flip side of that um, is not masochism. Right. It's not uh, self-pity and white people are the worst and like, oh, my gosh, I cannot do anything like that's another thing that we see. And yeah. that's also recentering the issue back on white folks. Right. And welling in your self-pity. And what we really encourage people to do is let go of this notion of a good white person. Right. And also don't be so inwardly focused that you're like, well, I could do nothing. No, but you want to be better. 
let's do that, right? Well, I love... <laughs> people people wh- can't ever get further than that. I want to lift up what I love the most about Safety Pin Box, which is it's really action-oriented and targeted to a white consumer, right? So you send a monthly subscription in box form to your white paying customers and give practical, actionable steps that they can take that white women like myself or white people writ large can take to begin to really be introspective, be self-critical, be analytical, not only about yourself, your beliefs, but really your actions and your community and how you can start right in your own home dismantling institutions of white supremacy and and how it really does fall on white folks to be involved in that process from a critical and analytical perspective. And then you're taking the, the money that those clients, that those consumers of the safety pin box are sending to you and re-funneling those funds directly to black women in the movement. And you're not dictating how those women use the money, right? It's directly for their own use in in being sustainable in this time and this climate, which I just, I think is such an awesome model and such a great example of if someone really wants to know what it looks like to be introspective, they can go to your website and get one of those. I believe you have a sample action, right? A sample action, like what comes Yeah, we have a sample test that's that's all about, we have a sample test that's all about assessing power in, um, in your community and in your personal life and seeing how you can shift it uh, to fight back against white supremacy because, um, I mean, we give the practical piece, we do a lot on the introspection, right, because uh, part of it is white people working through their own feelings around this, right, because I believe that um, unpacking whiteness and all of its trappings is part of the work, so that's simultaneously what people do, but a lot of times people think that these issues are so big, right, that they're like, all they can just do is just be sad and like reshare sad articles on Facebook, mm. <laughs> you know? Um, and so part of what we do is, is really parse. You learn about an issue, you learn about your role in it and be introspective around that. But then we really parse it down to, into, like, if you had half an hour today to work on something or half an hour twice a week for a month to work on something, like, what could you actually do? And so that's why the sample task is around power because we found that a lot of people say, oh, there's nothing I can do, and they haven't even done an assessment over the power that they hold in their own lives. And when you do an assessment there, you'll find you actually do have a lot of control um, over where your money goes, over your workplace. If you own a home, you have control over that space and how safe it can be to marginalize folks. Um, And even just starting there opens up new ideas for people. And I can tell you right now, so many of our listeners are right there of saying, what can I do? I feel powerless in this fight because white supremacy on display in this country right now especially feels overwhelming it feels like i don't know where to begin it feels you know that that shock that horror where whether it is fake or not so fake is baked into our country right how do we even begin to dismantle something that feels so big and so overwhelming uh you know even when we have white privilege going for us it doesn't always feel like one person can change so I just, I love how you break it down and make it really practical. Is there a, an example you could give for some of our listeners today who do have a half hour, who do want to examine their own power structures at home, who do want to take action and come up with not just a safety pin, but a safety plan for making marginalized folks in their world a little safer? Where could we begin or what, what's one action we might be able to start with? 
Right. Well, I will say that the part of the trick to this is a lot of people want to do work that looks glamorous, and most of the work that needs to be done is really unglamorous. Yeah. It's menial. It's, it takes. It does take a long time, even if you only have half an hour times a week. It may take years for you to build the connections that you want to do. Sure. But one of the um, well, this month for August, our theme is forget the police. Hashtag FTP. And uh, we are learning all about police abolition and the idea of abolishing the police and finding community alternatives to police. And one of the really tangible tasks that we're having our members work on is seeing if they can get their whole block, their whole neighborhood block, to agree to a 30-day ban on calling the police into their neighborhood. And so we walk people through that process, part of it. Uh, how it first starts is assessing the needs in your community, right? What do people think they need to call the police for? What we find out when people assess those needs is that those the police usually don't solve those needs, right? Or they're not worth bringing somebody who, with a gun in, right? Right. Um, or that the needs can be taken care of inside the community, right? And so if one of the needs is, um, you know, we have, we have people on our block who have mental health issues, right? Um, there's ways that we can address that without the police. So we have people go through with their community and, and talk to your neighbors. What are the needs in your community that you would say you need police for? And then assess, are there ways that you guys can fill it? How would, how would you accomplish a 30-day ban on calling the police? Um, and then actually doing it and seeing what a police-free block would look like for you because we know that for uh, black and brown people, for people with mental illnesses, um, as soon as you involve the police in a situation, you're putting that person's life in danger. And most of the things that we call the police for are not something that if you really press this on that we would say is worth somebody's life. Even if, you know, your your car got stolen, right? That's, you know, people would say, yes, I'm going to call the police on that. Um, but if you ask, should this person die because they stole your car? You'd probably say no. I would hope you would say, I would hope A, a, a rational, yeah, reasonable right, person right, right. hopefully would say no. Yeah, I think that's such I, a good... I hope, but you never know in the United States. Uh, but, but, you know... <laughs> You can walk through and say, okay, what do we do if somebody's car gets stolen? Yeah. Well, you can file a police report separately. And there's a non-emergency. Know, the your community. Right. And a lot of folks don't know that yeah. there's a non-emergency line you can call, too, that doesn't put someone else's life in danger. I think that's a really great right. example. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. Um, I have one last question. So I'm just curious if you could talk me through... What has the response been like for a project like Safety Pinbox? I certainly have seen um, instances of people kind of using this political and social climate that we are in to, I don't want to say any names, but collect money for perhaps that, that, where that money then goes someplace mm-hmm. where you're not actually sure or sure where it goes or who it helps. Mm-hmm. Oh, perhaps, we've named names on this we've podcast. We've named some names. I just, I just don't want to get a million yeah. tweets on Twitter being like, how dare you slam Mark Jacobs. It's okay. You don't need to name names. I know. Yeah. I already. Yeah. Probably so already if you could talk me through what has been the response that's, um, to Safety Pin Box. It was interesting. People they, people had issues with us that they don't have with major orgs that actually do squander money. Um, so we had all of these, like, critiques and stuff literally the, the, the day we launched, you know, before we had even sent out any products particularly from white men, people were very concerned about, like, what are you doing with all of the money? Like, you guys shouldn't pay yourselves at all. You should give orders. And we were very upfront. We're a business. We're not a nonprofit. Like, boom. Um, so there's a lot of welfare queen trope stuff happening, you know, where people basically were, like, 
acting like we were going to squander the money. And so it was funny. People would be like, oh, well, you need to give to the ACLU, who we know is trash now. Or, um, oh, you should give all of your proceeds to Black Lives Matter. I was like, that's interesting. Do you know where their money goes? And then people don't, right? Um, and so there was all of this scrutiny on us precisely because we made the decision to be a business yeah. instead of a nonprofit. And also because uh, people, white folks expect black folks to educate them on their own problems right. for free, right. which is slavery. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm like, if you want me like, to work for you for free to unlearn the white room that you learn so you could get me to work for you for free like what are we what are we yeah what are we doing here you know it was so ridiculous but i'll say we got tons we got multiple hit pieces written on us by quote-unquote liberal white dudes who had friggin' patreon accounts of like tens of thousands of dollars right 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 but um but i will say that all changed the day we started giving out money which was month two and it was interesting as we got covered by some pretty mainstream um, outlets and publications, particularly when we had a really good piece published in New York Magazine and NY Mag, which was one of the first outlets to do a hit piece on us actually two months before that. Then you see all of a sudden, now that we've become respectable to white people and like we've been co-signed mm-hmm. by all these white women and like these different platforms, like all of a sudden people who like did not, uh, mess with us yeah. at all at the beginning, did not support us at all at the beginning, like, oh, now we want to partner, now we want to, you know, do this and that, because now they think that we can give them some form of credibility, but we just tried to stay true to our vision at yeah. the very beginning, and we've given out over $100,000 directly to black women. Wow. wow. That's beginning amazing. Of January. Congratulations. Since the beginning of January? That's incredible. I don't understand how people get off on, you know, saying that you should be doing this for an, in a nonprofit way. I'm thrilled that the value you are providing is valued by this economy, right? That it's actually producing money and that you're putting that money where you see fit because that's how it should be. That to me is like capitalism doing its job for a change. Right. right. And the thing is, I've never seen anybody ask what Tim Wise does with his speaking piece. Right. I know. So it was mostly white men who came after us. And then uh, our 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 membership is mostly white women. Yeah. But also, you know, Pantsuit Nation people, when we launched, people were trying to share a safety pin box stuff in Pantsuit Nation. And the admins kept deleting the post and then said that they wouldn't allow the post because we weren't telling the quote unquote story. Right. But yet, like, they were publishing other people's businesses and stuff like that. So we definitely got resistance from all from all sides. But now that we're more established, now that we've given out a certain amount of money, um, all of a sudden we've become legitimate in certain people's eyes, which is really interesting for me as an activist who was in this movement for years, right, before, and very controversially so, um, before Safety Pin Box ever happened, there are a lot of people who refused to recognize my work, particularly with calling out Bernie Sanders and how that changed conversations within the presidential election, who all of a sudden now want to get on board because uh, um, our work has been credentialed in a certain way by white people, white orgs, and white women. And so we definitely see our work through safety pin box. And we also recognize that the activists that we support are people that um, folks folks, uh, wouldn't support regularly anyways. So we see ourselves as sort of a buffer to collect white folks' money 
um, and give it to people that they normally wouldn't support, that you're not going to see on the TV, that doesn't have tons of Twitter followers, but that's doing great work in their community. That's amazing, Marissa. Um, so where can our listeners find out more about what you're doing? Yeah, you can go to www.safetypinbox.com. Like you said, we have um, the sample task. You can sign up for a subscription there. We have some other really cool things. We have our Safety Pin Box Kids series, which is an eight-week series all about how to talk to your kids about race. It's, like, phenomenal. And then we also have, um, right now, our Not My President box because there's been a lot of conversation around how do we respond to hate crimes and the Nazis marching on the streets and, you know, Trump presidency. You can go check out um, our Not My President box, and that's the box that includes all of the information around creating safety plans and also has a really cool task in there about how do you talk to your kids about Trump and what Trump's presidency means. So there's tons of resources and content um, on our website. When we come back, we're going to talk through some more ways that you can really be a good ally and help take down this thing called white supremacy. So we are listening right now to a podcast about women and white supremacy. And uh, the podcast, again, is called Stuff Mom Never Told You. If you'd like to hear the full episode, you go to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com, and this came out on September 13th. I'll be playing the rest of the podcast, which is a little coming in a little under 20 minutes or so, um, but there's about half an hour before that, which we didn't hear today, but you're welcome to hear it on their webpage. Um, so they're just taking a break. I'm playing it all the way through. You're listening to Mutiny Radio. This is a weekly review with Roman. There's plenty of shows here at Mutiny Radio Every day. If you would like a show of your own, please check out mutinyradio.fm and slots are available for folks to have shows of any kind. There's also the comedy festivals coming up again next year. And we have a donate page if you'd like to donate, donate button, I should say, on mutinyradio.fm. This is kind of a community run station, so we all pay dues to have our shows on. If you would like to sponsor the weekly review, please go to patreon.com slash weekly rev. Um, even a dollar a month would be super helpful. And, we're back. and now I want to talk a little bit more about how white women can take some more responsibility for ending white supremacy and really kind of owning that it's a thing that we live with. So first, again, I know this might be hard to do because it requires some looking within and some introspection, but really acknowledge your own complicity. Uh, 53% of white women voted for Trump. I know we say this time and time and time again, But I think that's a really, really, really important number. And it's a really, really important thing to just own and sit with. And I think there's this immediate temptation for white folks who didn't vote for Trump, for instance, of which there are lots of us, to say, yeah, but I'm not one of those white women. I don't even know those white women. I don't even hang out with those white women. Or I don't even understand those white women. How can I begin to take responsibility for that? And then I would argue, who better to persuade those white women who have bought into this repackaged white supremacy, 2.0, 3.0, 5.0, wherever we're at, that is 2017, and help make the connection for our fellow white folks between how marching in the street with that tiki torch isn't all that different than make America great again. Right. And I'm so glad you brought that up because... I can't do that, no. right? I'm a black woman. I I will have no... I don't feel like I would have any chance of converting women like that. Yeah. Someone who 
presents white is going to have a much easier time than me, black woman with natural hair, who's, you know, wearing a hands off Asada T-shirt to convince them that they've that they've gone that they've gone down a bad path. And not to mention you shouldn't have to. Right. Because A, minorities are tired of fighting these fights. And B, the folks who are being persecuted on the receiving end of injustice, it's not on them to change the oppressor. Totally. And so I think it really just lights a fire under my butt to think of, as a white woman, how can I talk to white people more? Not just donating to causes, although those are good things to do too, but not just working with people of color, mm-hmm. not just working on behalf of and for those folks. How can I talk to my relatives who voted for Trump? How can I look inward into my community, into my neighborhood, talking to my Lyft driver on the way to the studio today about... You know, well, why do you feel like the Black Lives Matter movement is racist? Tell me more about that. Like, why do you feel about having those conversations with other white folks? And I think that goes back to something that Marissa said when she mentioned one of the tips for this month was to, if you're a white person, talk to the other white people in your neighborhood and get them to, you know, sign on to not calling the police. That the idea of of having a white asking a white person to talk to another white person about white supremacy, that sounds really hard. That is a high ask. And I think if you are really dedicated to dismantling this and understanding how it shows up in our in our lives and in our spaces and in our world, it's going to take those hard asks, right? Yes. Working with people of color and showing up as a woke ally probably feels like it feels good. feels good. Totally. Talking to your racist auntie who you've been, you know, spending years and years ignoring her racist jokes at Thanksgiving for 20 years, that is hard. That is hard. Definitely. And you know who can help is Jody Pico who you might know as being the kind of author of a good beach read that your racist auntie enjoys reading at the beach. Uh, She also, in addition to her incredibly lovely, uh, I think it's mostly fiction writing that she's been a part of, penned this op-ed for Time magazine, which we'll make sure to include in the show notes. And let me tell you, Jodi Picoult, demonstrates and sort of models what it looks like to be a white woman talking to other white folks about her own revelations on race and coming to not just confront racism, but also acknowledge her complicity and her responsibility in changing it. In that time op-ed, she wrote, here's the grievous mistake I had made for the majority of my life. I assumed that racism is synonymous with bias Yet you could take every white supremacist and ship them off to Mars and you'd still have racism in the world. That's because racism is systemic and institutional, but it is both perpetuated and dismantled in individual acts. So what she really goes on to elaborate is the systemic ways in which white privilege is a thing, which is the basic baseline. We should do a whole episode on white privilege. That's really the baseline conversation. We have to meet folks where they are on this sometimes and say, as she goes on to write, it's more challenging to see the tailwinds of racism, not the overt stuff, but, quote, the ways that being white makes it easier to achieve success. We like to believe that we succeed because we worked hard or because we were smart. It's harder to wrap our heads around the idea that the reason we might have a job or have gained admission to a college is a direct result of the fact that a person of color was never given that opportunity. I think that's so, so, so powerful. Um, again, when you look back at that racism index, saying things like, you know, they just need to work harder. I worked hard or, you know, things like that. 
she that that really nails why those comments don't actually get at the root of what white supremacy actually is. Right. That systemic acknowledgement of yes, it's at the core of our history in the United States of America. It's also pervasive in lots of ways across the globe. And these are systemic sort of baked in institutions that we can also make changes on in an individual basis. But instead of, you know, white folks focusing on helping people of color, we got to turn around and talk to our fellow white folks if we're going to really dismantle the institutions of white supremacy. Totally, because look at again, look at Charlottesville. You know, I am I, just so struck by that interview with the, you know, Charlottesville's Charlottesville killer's mother, where it was just clear she had not really checked in about what kind of toxic stuff her son was up to. And so talk to your sons, talk to your daughters, talk to your cousins and your, your you know, your husbands. Don't just let something toxic fester within them because it's uncomfortable to talk about. Right. If we had experienced the same kind of tragedy, except it was, I don't know, a Muslim American, and instead of a car being driven into a crowd, it were an explosive device... We would be blaming his friends and family for not alerting the police. But instead, because this is a white perpetrator and because this is an act of racist violence, we don't treat that like the terrorism that it really is. And that's that's a, a problematic framing, in my opinion, that has everything to do with race. And that's really quite similar. This idea that letting something like racism fester because you assume it's benign or you assume it's not going to kill someone or harm someone else is really problematic, and it's something that April Harder, a licensed counselor and social worker, wrote about on Medium.com when she wrote the blog post, How America Spreads the Disease That is Racism by Not Confronting Racist Family Members and Friends. She writes, Racism is complex in scope because it is both a mental illness and a value. In other words, it is a valued, sheltered, and protected mental illness. One might even say it has been incubated and allowed to fester throughout the course of American history. She goes on to write, quote, like all illnesses, it needs to be treated in order for it to be cured. The problem is that we don't see racism as a problem because we don't see it for what it is, an infectious disease that has been an epidemic plaguing our nation. I think that's so fascinating. I can't help but be reminded of this movie from a few years ago, American History X. Yes, definitely. Where it's the guy who is a complete, I guess, skinhead, right? Like Nazi he's got skinhead. Nazi yeah, tattoos, sure. you know, the works. And he does all this awful stuff throughout the movie. And then at the very end of the movie, you realize that the early seed of his ideology is that his dad, who is presented as this stand-up great guy, firefighter, community guy, father would make comments about black people right. at the dinner table, casual things. And that seeing that, that was an, it, it's implied that that was an early seed that kind of grew into something that wasn't a comment here or there, but that was really violent. Right. I'm so glad you brought that up because it's about his rehabilitation right. and then his return home. Right. And it, it, it is treated like going to rehab. It's right. treated as that kind of a right. thing where it's not, you know... It's not like, oh, I became friends with a black guy and then it went away. It's like, no, it's a it's a the same way that you would have to get something out of your right. system through work. That's what it's presented yeah. as. It's it's getting rid of hate. Right. And that is admirable work um, that a lot of folks are doing. and A lot of folks need to do. So a couple other quick takeaways, some actionable items for especially the white women listening who are saying, OK, I get it. I have to talk to my uncomfortable relatives who 
don't want to talk about race, but that's part of my job here as a white woman to dismantle white supremacy. What else can we do? There's an article that I also want to just shed light on by Courtney Ariel uh, called For Our White Friends Desiring to Be Allies. And she just has some really quick, great tips that I found very instructive. And the first was for white women to listen more and talk less. And the way I like to think of this is to pass the mic. Oh, I love that because, again, like we were talking about before, it can be a weird balance of either making it all about you and your emotions and spraying your emotions everywhere or just feeling really resigned, like, I'm so sad, what can I do? Both of those are a way of sort of making it about you. You, But what's important is to not make it about you. Yeah, and the, the first temptation might be to go on Facebook and scream virtually, right? To just share every you know, every thought and feeling and tweet about it and write your own piece. But there's also a really strong case for saying, this is not a moment for you and your brand to capitalize on, which as a business owner was challenging to figure out exactly how do we respond to these kinds of crises without saying that this is our issue and that we're the experts on this. It's about passing the mic and making sure that we're being megaphones, especially for women of color or people of color who are doing this work every single day, not just when tragedy strikes and not just when it's all in the headlines. And not just when it's in style, because it's in style to call out Nazis right now. It's in style to call out white supremacists right now. It hasn't always been so fun. It hasn't always been in vogue. You know, I spent a good portion of my life being called things like a social justice warrior or, you know, the PC police or, you know, several other things that I can't say on this show. It hasn't always been a cool thing to stand up against racism and against white supremacy. And I think it's a good thing to do, but I think it's worth noting that if you do things when it's easy to do, you should examine that. Other ways to be a true ally, other than simply not wanting to be racist, which Courtney Ariel writes, thank you for that, by the way. But she says, being an ally requires you to educate yourself about systemic racism in this country. So if you are looking for a reading list, if you are aware that you're unaware of this stuff, here's a great reading list that Courtney Ariel actually gives you some some literature to start on. And I'm sure I'm sure we have stuff to add to this. But M- Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, Ta-Nehisi Coates's Between the World and Me, and Claudia Rankine's Citizen. There are really so many other great books and articles that we'll link to in the notes below, but we encourage you to use your voice and influence to direct folks to educating themselves and to do the hard work of educating ourselves too. Yeah, I think it's hard work. I think it's important to do. Um, just one note, when you get really fired up about all the, all these things you're reading, don't reach out to your friend of color unless their job is working in, in, in an anti-oppression space. Don't reach out to your friend of color uh, who who doesn't work in the anti-oppression space and ask them to do this labor of helping you unpack this for you. This is something, that, a journey that folks should be taking on their own, finding resources, Googling, using resources that are out there like Safety Pin Box or other anti-oppression you know, trainings. But don't put this on your Black friend because they're probably going through enough right now. Yeah, and they're probably asked to do this more than they should be. So That's just real. remember it's not on minorities to solve and end white supremacy. And the other way I thought that we as well-meaning white folks can be led astray sometimes is something that Courtney points out in this article which is the chiming in on social media, the idea that 
She writes, for one out of every three opinions or insights shared by a person of color in your life, try to resist the need to respond with a better or different insight about something that you've read or listened to as it relates to their shared opinion. Sometimes your unique take isn't all that helpful. Or appreciated, right. I would say. <laughs> I've definitely had times where, you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to have a dialogue with other women of color and very well-meaning, but like a little unappreciated. It's like, oh, well, that's just like blah, blah, blah. And we're all thinking, oh, well, thanks for your insight. Um, just be a little mindful. Yeah. Listen, I mean, it's hard. I, I get it. I I I'm the queen interrupter over here. I get it. The instinct can be to jump in with your opinion and your thought and your sharing. Sometimes asking questions and listening intently and just letting yourself learn is the best possible thing you can do. And it's a, it's a balancing act because it, it can feel, even writing this episode, coming up with this topic, saying, wait a second, I, at one point, I, very early on after Charlottesville, I asked my Twitter followers, what do you think white women's involvement or white people's involvement in dismantling white supremacy should be? Because for a second, I was hearing and reading white women, this is not your time to make this your mm. moment to speak out. And I'm thinking, is it not, like, should I not take the initiative on this? But I ended up make, coming to the conclusion that I'm not going to capitalize on right. this, but we sure as hell are going to take the time, and I'm, I want to make it my prerogative to cover this topic thoroughly. Well, I think you just, you just highlighted kind of an age-old debate of do we uplift women of color and folks of color or do we speak out do white women speak out themselves i think that's a i think yeah. i see a lot of folks wrestling with that yeah um i don't have the answer i think it's about a balance i, I think it's about speaking up and using your white privilege when you can in a way that is not making it about you that is not capitalizing that's certainly not taking money because of the suffering of folks of color um that should go with that saying right but in a way that is that is brave and that is real and authentic I also think that they're not mutually exclusive. I always like to say, lift as you climb, which is a phrase that's been involved in the social justice movement, especially on behalf of women of color for a long time. I learned when I saw it imprinted on a banner at the National Museum of African American History and Culture here in D.C. But lifting as you climb to me is about, yeah, do the work, make your voice heard, but make sure you're bringing women of color up with you and you're make you know making sure that their voices are heard too i think i dare to say that this podcast is a pretty fine example of that in action i hope so right i hope so i think so i think we can we can always strive to continue to learn and grow together that's like our our unofficial <laughs> motto it i really love it we say it a lot it. i like it i know now these are just some of the ways that you can take practical instructive action to end white supremacy and for us women in particular to own the ways in which women have always been a part of white supremacy here in the United States and beyond. And I really want to thank you, our listeners, for leaning into the discomfort that can be this topic and for listening with hopefully open minds and hearts and understanding that it's our intention here at Stuff Mom Never Told You to not shy away from really tough, early, complicated issues like this and somehow hopefully package it together in a in a research-driven and actionable snippet for you to, to consume on your way to work or back. Yeah, so we want to hear from all of y'all out there, whether you're a white lady who's sort of grappling with this, whether you're a fed-up, pissed-off person of color, because I'm there with you much of the time. We want to hear from you. How has white supremacy played out in your life? 
What are some ways that you've been tackling it? How are you dealing with it? You can reach us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You, on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast, or via email at MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. All right. So that was, again, Stuff Mom Never Told You podcast on the episode on women and white supremacy. <sighs> really grateful that that uh, was done. So, yeah, so we'll be taking a bit of a music break now and back with some more news in a little bit. So here's a song from Team Dresh. A little. Oop. And it's, the song is called, uh, all right, now we're good, uh, Uncle Frank. Hey, Frank. Hey, short. What's happening? Frank's taking a bath. Well, Frank, remember what you told me the last time I called? Short? What did I say?
Don't you try to move 
Okay, and welcome back to the weekly review. Just played some tracks from one of my favorite bands, the Afghan Wigs. Uh, those are two songs off their most recent album, and then the one before that was a song called Honky's Ladder. And the single featured if uh, it was art, it was a, a KKK member being hanged. That was on the cover of that single, uh, which went along really nicely with that pop song from 1996. Before that, Team Dresh with Uncle Frank. Joined here in the studio by Val, who hosts Women's Magazine, as well as the Common Thread Collective with Diamond Dave. Val, thanks for being here. Hey, thank thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. Thanks, Roman. I like sure. how we can collaborate on Friday afternoons and kind of, it's all very, you know, organic, as we say on the Common Thread Collective, to yeah. kind of cross over and join each other's uh, shows. And um, it's good to have uh, everyone here and all the voices going out there and all our listeners who we don't know because you're listening to the radio, but we do love you. We, we do very much. <laughs> Thanks for your support. Yeah. It's nice to have an audience. And also if anyone ever feels like calling in, our, our numbers are four. Our number is 415-550-0511. We appreciate feedback. So on the show earlier, we we're talking about, or I played a podcast from stuff mom never told you and it was about women and white supremacy and the first half hour or so that i didn't play on the, this show talked about the history of women in white supremacy including the kkk and how that at one point the kkk had a wkkk which was specifically for women to participate in that and they made some correlations between women gaining um with the suffrage movement and some women gaining um you know the right to vote white women getting the white the white women getting the right to vote and then having being not drunk with power, but like being like, Oh, we have some power now. What else can we do? And kind of using that in a way that was not necessarily that ended up being extremely uh, harmful. Yeah. Well, I think that there's still, I mean, no matter if you're male or female, at least, I mean, we're talking back, you know, a hundred years ago now when the right to vote for women yeah. is, I mean, it's coming up the hundredth anniversary. Oh, that's right. in the, yeah, 2020 20. will be the hundredth anniversary. Wow. Um, and there's kind of uh, some, some discussion about, you know, maybe shutting down the White House that day. Just saying. Why do we have um, to wait till 2020? I don't think we do, but you know, as a, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> maybe not on that day anniversary, yeah. but um, maybe on International Women's Day, which is, yes. which is March 8th, 2020. Put it on your calendar. Yeah. Um, but we'll see what happens between now and then. It's only 2017. And as we know, a lot happens all the time. So things, things will change. But, um, I mean, we're talking about these women. You were talking about this, like, WKKK, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's a matter of this, I mean, white supremacy knows no gender, right? Yeah. It's it's like uh, the latest term that I've really heard a lot of people discussing is skin privilege. Yeah. You know, if you look white, mm-hmm. if you can pass for white. Mm-hmm. And this was a... a you know, I recently watched a Ken Burns documentary about jazz, oh, which yeah. is an amazing like nine or ten part series. Wow! Uh, that he made it several years ago now, but what they talk, you know, it's jazz. They talk a lot about New Orleans, mm-hmm. and you had the Creole in New Orleans who were the, you know, kind of French and African slave descendants but they were already kind of a, a more privileged class than um light darker skinned african-american mm-hmm. slaves former slaves mm-hmm. um and you know more educated and and uh, you know we're playing music obviously it was focused on music mm-hmm. um but then uh after 
the Civil War and during Reconstruction, um, and with with Jim Crow laws coming into place after Reconstruction, it the laws changed so that if you were any part African descent, you were now this second class citizen mm-hmm. for sure, um, kind of lumping everybody together. Mm-hmm. So you see that the state or the, the authority, um, you know, giving people their identity as opposed to letting people have their own um, or making people live by the terms of what the, you know, the powers that be deem your identity. Um, so skin privilege, uh, looking white, passing for white, mm-hmm. um, has given people advantages, mm-hmm. you know, throughout you know the history of our country, and yeah. you know, but um, in terms of, I heard on your on your podcast, uh, the, the podcast that you played, what yeah. were they called again? The uh, stuff mom never told you. Stuff mom never told me. Yeah. Well, Mike my, my, and then they kind of challenged people or asked people, prompted people to to share how white supremacy had a, affected their lives. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to change the title and say things my dad never told me mm-hmm. because I um, I'm kind of uh, mixed, right? So on my dad's side, I'm Spanish, Mexican, Native American, some other kind of Euro something or other that's mm-hmm. mixed in, maybe French. We're not exactly sure on that side. Um, and so my last name is a Spanish last name. It's a Basque last name. And then on my mom's side, I'm, you know, all sorts of European, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Irish, uh, French, Danish, uh, but also Italian and, and uh, what else am I? Bunch of Scottish. So um, in my lifetime, um, white supremacy has certainly affected me in, in various ways, um, kind of in unexpected ways too, because my dad who grew up here in the mission district, um, he experienced a lot of discrimination as, as a young person. Mm -hmm. His father came from Mexico. They worked in the fields. He was really young. He worked in the fields down in like the Salinas Valley for a time before they moved up to San Francisco. And so he grew up in an era as kind of a first generation, even though his mother was Native American. Mm-hmm. Um, he grew up as a first generation kind of American uh, who was of the mindset that, um, you know, you speak English, you assimilate because um, otherwise you're going to be discriminated against. Mm-hmm. And so it affected my life directly because he refused to teach us Spanish. Oh. Me and my brothers, I've. I have a big family. Yeah. All of his sister's children speak Spanish and English, but all of my father's children only speak English. He refused to wow. teach us Spanish because he equated English speaking and white mm-hmm. with privilege. Yeah. And and almost started and, and, and he's been gone a long time. He he passed away a long time ago. Um but I think he internalized racism and turned it against other people. Mm. And so I grew up with racism at home. Mm-hmm. But, you know, eventually it really, I mean, it didn't take too long actually in my life to realize how, how messed up it was. And I, you know, I grew up here in San Francisco. So it was, I, I think I was kind of a minority in my school growing up. Um, anyhow, so it was uh, something that became very clear to me at a rather young age that I just, and I'm like, why, wait, why do people say bad things about other people? And why are white people s- supposed to be better than others? And wait a second, we're not fucking white. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the heart, and, but you know, but we all, you know, we're Irish too. So it's like, we've got this, like we said, skin privilege, right? Yeah. Um, so 
it's been kind of it's kind of a weird thing because um one of the hardest things is to try to explain to people in my family uh you know who i grew up with who who may have like kind of like not really gotten past a lot of that or just Mm -hmm. you know it's all kind of internalized so it's not necessarily that they're you know ranting raving racist people but you know it, it like it's not something that they actually like i don't think really pushed through necessarily yeah it's yeah. just kind of there you know um but it's kind of hard to explain to them how we're not actually white you mm-hmm. guys you know um like some people in my family are like darker skin than i am and they're and they're like yeah but we're white i'm like but you're not mm-hmm. to, like not completely you know and you know i think in terms of identity you're always going to be um who you are, but you're also going to be subject to other people's opinions of who you are. Yep. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Roman knows this one yeah, in, yeah. in many facets, many, yeah. many ways. So it's kind of funny, and this doesn't happen to me all the time, but, you know, occasionally I'll walk in somewhere, and maybe I'm wearing my sunglasses, mm-hmm. but, like, um, if I'm in a an area where there are a lot of Spanish-speaking people, but, like, if, if it's... Uh, I, I don't know. Basically, people have spoken Spanish to me, and when they think I, I speak Spanish, mm-hmm. um, but also I'll walk into places where it's like Spanish speaking, and they'll speak English to me mm-hmm. just automatically because they're yeah. like, "Oh, this this girl doesn't speak Spanish; she's yeah. not <laughs> Latina, you know." But maybe she is. So you get this, you know, this kind of mixed uh, reactions and, and actions from d- various people, and you know, in a benign, kind of harmless way most of the time. I've never personally really experienced anybody like discriminating against me, like or like treating me in a weird way um, based on the color of my skin or the color of my hair or anything, um, you know, because I I pass, right? Mm-hmm. You get that pass. Um, yeah, I, I always say I have Spanish eyes with an Irish twinkle in them, you know? It's like, I'm a white girl. <laughs> and it's been, um, you know, and it's, it's hard because I grew up also in a time of... Um, when the kind of the national debate about affirmative action was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. Yeah, you and I are about the same age. Yeah. We're of that same era. And so as I was applying to colleges, um, that was a big debate. You know, do you do you check Caucasian? Do you check Latino? Mm-hmm. Um, because will one of them give you a privilege? Mm-hmm. Um, will one of them give you, not, uh, give you an advantage? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather, not a privilege, but an advantage, right? Well, if there's affirmative action and you write Latina, then maybe you'll get in because you're because you're Latina, and they want to f- make a quota, you know. But I remember as a high school student saying, "Well, I just want to get in on my own merit." Right, right. You know, I don't want to have to check a box to do it. Um, they're either going to take me or they aren't, and um, it's it's kind of it, it's very it's so complex because you know with all this like white nationalism movement going on these days. I found a flyer on the Muni train the other day that was on the floor from some white nationalist organization mm-hmm. that they had just like, you know, peppered or flyered. And um, it's like, we've got to protect the white race. And I'm like, guys, nobody's totally white, first yeah. of all. Yeah. Like, what do you even mean by white? Right, right. You know? And, um, but also, it, I mean, y- you see it in these very um, kind of narrow definitions. You know, it's like, well, 
all these like white nationalists now are saying like, well, we need to protect, you know, white kids and like let them go to college and they're getting discriminated against because of affirmative action. It's like, hey, 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 <laughs> like, let's just let people go to college, you know. Um, but in, but obviously, uh, historically, people who are not this white class, this Caucasian class, uh, you know, or race, whatever, um, don't have as many advantages as, as you know, just you know, on average. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a very kind of it's a very like deep debate, and people have get really you know personally touched by it in various ways. Um, and you know, but any time that I encounter like actual white supremacy, it just makes me sick. Because yeah. obviously we're all humans, you know, we all have, we all know and live with all the people around us. I mean, of course we're in San Francisco. It's rather diverse. It's less diverse than it used to be. Yeah. Yes. I wish people understood that. Right. Right. I think that the African American population of San Francisco has whittled down to about 3%. 3%. Yeah. And even just a few years ago, maybe, maybe like five or six years ago, it was 11%, mm. which is already small as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we have, but we have such a mix of people, but people here are, are a mix of different from yeah. different places and lineages and things. Um, so, yeah, white supremacy is seems like such a base place to operate from mm-hmm. and to like count that as like your, you know, your um you know, the end all be all. Yeah. You know, it's I I think a lot of this white nationalism is the fear that quote unquote minorities are actually coming up to going to be the majority or have equal privileges yeah. that, that they and their kin um, have enjoyed for, yeah. for, you know, however long. Um, so it, I, I think it's really sad and um, you know, I hope that people can do the work to understand uh, whether, you know, maybe they had influences in their lives who taught them this, right? Hate is a taught thing. Yeah. Um, but to really try to, y- you can, you can reteach yourself. Yeah. And it's, it might take time and it might feel really weird and, and hard. Yeah. It's kind of like losing your religion, you know? <laughs> You're like, oh my God, that's not true. Oh, I don't know how I feel about that. You know, it's a hard process that maybe some people aren't willing to do, but I think there are a lot of people who are willing to do it and we see it and I've seen it and I've seen it, you know, just in the past year where you have white men who, you know, not have come out and said and told their stories. They're like, I was raised like this. Yeah. This is what my father told me. Yeah. They said, we like these black people because they're our neighbors, but don't go over there because we don't like black people in general. And it was like so conflicting. Like I've heard these people tell these stories now and also trying to redirect people to realize like, hey, you can, you can change your mindset. You can change, you have a change of heart. Yeah. And I feel like there were so many people across the country that had that change of heart when Barack Obama was running for president the first time. And I'm not here to say Barack Obama was wonderful. He's eloquent, but he did a lot of really messed up stuff. Yeah. I don't agree with a, you know a lot of the policies that he let you know that he signed. Yeah, yeah. Um, GOP on the on a different topic. Yeah. Um, but um, 
you know, I remember that wave that went through this country where people were healing from racism, generations of racism, Mm -hmm. understanding and accepting things that they had never previously even thought that they'd be able to accept. Yeah. And hearing stories from people who you would think would never vote for a black man, would never vote for a woman, you know, and then they're like, well, you know, actually, this is, you know, I see the merit and I see, you know, like, I'm impressed, basically. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to get over my own lingering racism Mm -hmm. that's deeply embedded in so many people. Yeah. And I think, like, that's why I think... And so there was so such a change of heart across this country. It was really beautiful. Now, as we said, Obama was, you know, he did a lot of terrible things as well. I could list a few, but I'm going to stay focused. Yeah. Um, I And I think that that's part of the reason why right now is so hard to handle this resurgence of white nationalism, blatant racism um, that's coming forward, because I felt like, we were getting past that. Mm-hmm. We were like on the road. To, we were healing as a nation. Yeah. And now it's like, you know, they're just, it's just like big gashes coming back again. And it's getting really ugly and bloody. And the whole, the fact that there's so, uh, the whole like Black Lives Matter, that there's so much police brutality that, that doesn't get, you know, that's not there's there's no justice yeah and that the fbi are now like labeling black lives matter as as terrorists which right. is so obscene right black identifying extremists yeah. right yeah and their their language not ours right yeah it's just ridiculous yeah i mean going back to like what they did with the black panthers yeah, with COINTELPRO. yeah yeah COINTELPRO. i mean they they they've killed black panthers they I mean, some of the Black Panthers, they, they, Black Panthers just celebrated 50 years, 51 years. Last weekend, they had a big celebration. Um, you know, and, and some of those guys were in prison mm-hmm. for like 30, 33 years, you know. Um, you know, it was like, well, white men can be armed, but black men can't be armed. Mm-hmm. It's a complete double standard, yeah. like definition of a double standard. So, you know, the, the white, male privilege is afraid of giving that up mm-hmm. they have been for a long time mm-hmm. and apparently they still are yeah in in many ways yes yes so um i like to think that you know it's a yin yang thing like with the dark comes the light and i really if i didn't know how much good and how much solidarity and intersectionality was actually at play in, in this in the country and around the world um, to counter all of those really old, stale notions, um, I would feel pretty hopeless. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I see it here. I see it happening around the country. Uh, people coming together, thinking outside the box, working together, helping one another, getting into the streets, saying their piece, and trying to help other people heal in, in, in various ways, whether it's like through a demonstration that, you know, they're actually saying, well, it's not just fighting against something, it's fighting for something. Right, right. So I, I, I just, I just hope we can keep up our momentum of, uh, you know, standing up for, for the human race. Yes. Yeah. It seems to be one thing after the other. So, mm. I mean, there's the, the, the idea is that, you know, you, you tap 